Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. All right, you ready? How do you get 50 Canadians out of a swimming pool? <laughs> don't know. Everyone out of the pool, please. I am Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Aaron Britt, deputy editor of Dwell Magazine. That'll help break the ice. If you're not at a Canadian dinner party. That is true, although they'll be polite about it. Probably. We will be speaking with Aaron later, and we'll also be talking with Ben Gibbard from the band Death Cab for Cutie. He has a new solo album out this week. Also coming up, comedian W. Kamal Bell shares a list of political fakes. Swedish musician Jens Lekman tells us a story about a fake marriage, and Emily Post's great-grandchildren stop by and tell us how to fake being polite. Which works the same as actually being polite. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these news headlines. The second debate between President Obama and Mitt Romney is done. Newsweek, at least the print version, is going away in 2013. A big miss from Google and a big decline, more than 7% for the stock to date. Now for something you might not have heard, we turn to Aaron Britt. He is a new father and he is the deputy editor of Dwell Magazine. Aaron, when you're not hanging out with your kid, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about something that actually my kid might like. Uh, This is the perfect intersection of architecture and fun. There is a proposal out from Atelier Zundel Cristea, that's AZC, a Parisian firm, to build a new bridge over the Seine. And this bridge is not for cars. It's not even really for walking. It is three connected inflatable inner tubes with trampoline mesh in between. (laughs) Wow. You can literally bounce your way across the Seine if this thing gets built. Wow. That this that is adds, beautiful. Yeah, that adds a little je ne sais quoi to Paris. Yeah, well... I, I mean that good. literally, by the way. I do not know what that adds to Paris. <laughs> <laughs> like, why? Well, the vision here, according to the architects, was that getting over the Seine just isn't all that much fun. But what? How does, how does it work? What does it look like? Well, you have to imagine three connected circles. They're about 100 feet wide, each of them. Wow. And... It's like the inner tube of a tire where you've got a big inflatable Mm. bumper around the side and then the trampoline mesh is down below. So as you're bouncing Mm. on the trampoline, you could conceivably knock into one of the walls and bounce back uh, or maybe it'd be really difficult to bounce (laughs) over the top because it's so hot. Okay, good. So on the one hand, that's smart because it draws on a a local resource, hot air, right, Mm. to to inflate. But (laughs) on the other hand, it could be dangerous because it could deflate with one flick of a galois. That's true. The whole thing could go down. Can't smoke on that bridge. I'm just excited to see what the parkour guys will do with it. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) They're going to be, like, leaping from the bridge onto the Eiffel Tower. It's going to be quite a sight. It's in view of the Eiffel Tower. There'll be berets everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Fun indeed. Uh, Aaron Britt of Dwell Magazine, thanks so much for the small talk. Yeah, you bet. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our crowd-pleasing history lesson with booze. First, the history. This week, back in 1973, a famous kidnapping turned famously gory. Yes, it's a fitting tale to tell at your forthcoming Halloween party, perhaps. Our friend Michelle Philippi has the details. Money can't buy happiness. Case in point, John Paul Getty III. His grandfather, Getty Sr., was one of the richest oil men on earth. 
So when John Paul was kidnapped in Italy at age 16, he probably didn't think it'd be long before Grandpa paid the $17 million ransom. Except two problems. First, Getty Sr. was a notorious skinflint, the kind of guy who had a payphone installed in his own mansion for guests who needed to make a call. And second, John Paul had a rep as a rebellious hippie. So the Gettys suspected he'd faked his own kidnapping to con his grandfather. He hadn't. And after three months, John Paul's captors proved it. On October 21, 1973, they cut the kid's ear off, stuffed it in an envelope, and sent it to an Italian newspaper with the warning that more bits would follow if they didn't get paid. The good news? The kidnappers also reduced the ransom to around three million bucks. The bad news? Italian postal workers were on strike, so the package took three weeks to arrive. By the time the Gettys took John Paul's kidnapping seriously, he'd been chained up in Italian caves for four months. Anyway, the ear did the trick. Getty Sr. finally agreed to help pay the ransom, and John Paul was released. Of course, John Paul's dad had to promise to pay Grandpa back with 4% interest. So that's the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line with Eric Alperin. He's the owner and bar manager of The Varnish in Los Angeles, John Paul Getty's old stomping grounds, where he left a big fortune and a big art collection. So, Eric, you heard the history lesson. What cocktail does that inspire you to make? Uh, well, you know, it, uh, after reading the story, um, one of the first cocktails that popped to mind was the Americano, which is a classic Italian aperitif cocktail. It's actually served to the American soldiers uh, during World War II when they were in Italy. Really? Is it, yeah. is it coffee and hot water? Yeah. <laughs> It's a Campari and a sweet vermouth. Okay. It is um, the color red, um, <laughs> which in the story when you have... Uh, a bloody uh, ear. Junior's ear has been cut off. <laughs> yeah. It, it kind of it made an immediate parallel. And his father went into the red to uh, spring Junior. Yes, exactly. There you go. <laughs> we're making more parallels here. So, so, you thought of the, so you thought immediately of the Americano. Yeah. It's an aperitif style drink. It requires equal parts sweet vermouth and uh, Campari in a Collins glass with some really nice block ice, if you can, topped off with that with club soda. Now, uh, a funny little twist that I have a good friend of mine, Michael Madrusen, he did a twist on, on the Americano and called it the Young American. Ah, a la David Bowie? Totally. Uh, you would make the Young American the same way, except before you built it all in the glass, you would just rinse out the glass with about uh, two bar spoons of absinthe. Right, and the absinthe harkens back to someone else who lost their ear, Vincent van Gogh. Yeah. So there's another, yet another parallel for us. Exactly. Man, so Brendan, kind of a disturbing tale there. It is a bit disturbing, but I, I find it uplifting in a way. Really? Well, because now anytime any of our listeners feel their families are just totally dysfunctional, oh, yeah. you know, they, they know it could be worse. <laughs> yes. Setting the bar low for the American family. That's right. Nice. Folks, speaking of bars, we've collected all our cocktails on our website. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click Recipes. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today, our guest is comedian W. Kamau Bell. He's founder of the comedy collective Laughter Against the Machine. The New York Times called him, quote, the most promising new talent in political comedy in many years, 
And he is host of the TV show Totally Biased, which just returned to the FX network. Here he is with a Totally Biased list. Hi, I'm W. Kamau Bell, a stand-up comedian and host of Totally Biased on FX. On Totally Biased, we talk a lot about politics. Uh, there's obviously a lot of politics going right now. It's the political playoffs. But this is my list of my favorite fake politicians. My first fake favorite politician from the movie The Contender. Jeff Bridges plays the president of the United States of America in The Contender. Not everybody saw that movie, but that's fine. He plays the president, and in the movie, he basically plays Bill Clinton without the Lewinsky factor, which means he was the best president in the history of all time because he was all the like charm of Bill Clinton, all the intellect of Bill Clinton, uh, all the food issues of Bill Clinton, but minus the Lewinsky. And you're like, man, that would have been a great president. <laughs> that that would have been amazing. Yeah. The thing I remember about Jeff Bridges and the contender that I thought was so cool about him being the president is that he's always eating and he's always he's impressed with how he can order anything from the White House kitchen and they always have it. Glenda? Yes, sir. Could we put together a grilled cheese sandwich, Munster on rye? Right away. Oh, sorry, uh, where are my manners? You guys want anything? No, no, thank you, sir. Being able to order any food you want at any time and knowing somebody's going to get to you absolutely makes you a better leader. And with all the pressure of being the president, you know, if something happens, like let's say uh, somehow Korea sends a nuclear warhead and blows off Florida and you want a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you should be able to have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich to calm your nerves when Florida has been annihilated by a nuclear weapon. I'm, uh... Mr. President? Yes, Glenda? Sir, the kitchen's all out of Munster. Really? Wow, well, um, let's get on that. We don't want the wheels coming off the wagon. So another of my favorite fake politicians is a Tiny Zeus Lister from the movie The Fifth Element. Uh, and I believe he's actually president of the galaxy, not just president of America. And at that point, there was no Barack Obama. So I was like, man, a black guy, not only is our first black president, he's president of, like, the galaxy. That's amazing. And Tiny Zeus Lister's a big, tough, muscular dude, and you feel like... That's kind of what I would like an office to see. I'd like to see a ripped president. Not only a president who can like can uh, argue with you and debate you, but also who will punch you in the face. Mr. President. Yes, now what? I, I, we have a problem. Okay, there's a ball of fire, 1,200 miles in diameter, heading straight for Earth. If the President Tiny Zeus Lister visited China and he's like six foot 19 and 300 pounds, they might be like, huh, maybe we should uh, actually put our currency at the correct value. Because <laughs> this dude looks angry. He looks angry. We lost it. We lost the signal. Damn! We are almost out of time, so I will instead ask each candidate to sum up in a single word the best argument for his candidacy. Governor Bush? Strategery. Will Ferrell as George W. Bush might be my favorite fake politician of all time. My access of evil doesn't seem to interest some people out there. Some people just want to talk about the economy and budgets and Enron. I bet most of you out there don't even understand Enron. I sure as heck don't. It hurts my head to think about it. So from now on, Enron will be part of my access of evil. Will Ferrell was so good as W that it kind of made the fact that the economy tanked and the, uh, the world almost came to an end several times. It kind of balances it out. Both candidates are heavily patriotized and display much characterization. 
My favorite thing about it was the word choices and how he made Bush overpronounce and underpronounce words. And I don't even know if Bush even did that, but it didn't matter because he did it in my memory now, thanks to Will Ferrell. That's the power of comedy. In my mind, George W. Bush doesn't know how to pronounce words, thanks to Will Ferrell. Thanks, John. It is uh, with great honor and uh, dignification that that we are... uh, Ah, hell with it. I'm gone in seven months. I don't have to talk all president anymore. How's it hanging, wise... W. Kamau Bell. You can check out his political satire show, Totally Biased, on the FX channel Thursday nights at 11.30. And Rico, Kamau had several other suggestions for that list, All right. including Mayor Quimby from The Simpsons. Good one. Probably the most popular politician in America. <laughs> and the cartoon characters Tom and Jerry. Yeah. Because he liked how they fought all the time, but at the end of the day, they were still friends. Oh. He thought, that's how our system should be, you know? Nice. Like John Boehner and Bernie Sanders are in my dreams. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure they play whist every Wednesday. Me too. In your dreams. <laughs> Folks, we're going to take a break, but we've got a whole lot of show left. Later on, we learn about the science of disgust, and Emily Post's great-grandchildren stop being polite. You are fat. Oh, my. When the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Newnham. Coming up, psychologist Rachel Herz tells us what love smells like. Ew. Also, Swedish troubadour Jens Lekman shows us what love sounds like. Okay. But first, it's time for our etiquette segment. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave. And this week we welcome back the masters of etiquette, Lizzie Post and Daniel Post sending the great-great-grandkids of Emily Post herself. They help run the Emily Post Institute in Vermont, and they are the co-authors of the 18th edition of the Emily Post Manners Manual. Dan, Lizzie, how's everything? Life is good. Excellent. The flight industry is going well? Yeah. It is. Or rather the rudeness industry. Is, is rudeness booming? Ramping up for the holiday season. <laughs> well, yeah, and the election season. Season, right? Oh boy, yes. As it gets nastier, <laughs> are, are your services in more demand? Absolutely. They are. <laughs> My sister Anna had an awesome little video on how to talk politics and not offend. Yeah. Oh, we'll have to put the link up on our website. We Our first question actually is about politics, and it comes from Dave in Indiana. He writes, I'm going to a debate watching party this week. Is it all right to talk back at the television? I mean, the candidates. <laughs> and we're assuming that this would be like a, a party with mixed political persuasions, I guess. Well, maybe not. Yeah. They hang out. Um, Good point. If I was hosting the party, I might say, hey, you know, like we should get together and lay out the rules in like a funny, comical way. Like, you know, no remotes thrown at the heads, you know, or <laughs> only whistles when you agree with something. Or, Interesting. You know, just some sort of game about it to make it more fun. Sure. And if somebody mm. breaks the rules, then you can sort of like joke about it instead of getting angry about it. Totally. And just caution, if you're the only person in the room <laughs> who's loudly voicing opinions, you might just want to take note of how other people are approaching the bar. Yeah, I mean, is that how you monitor? Because I'm someone who talks, I don't have a television at home, but when I, I'm out and I see a television, I totally talk about what's happening on TV. <laughs> even if and no one's around, it's kind of scary. <laughs> but even if it's not about politics, I'll make a comment about someone's hair. I mean, is yeah. it just basically you gauge the reaction of other people? Is that how you decide whether it's okay? I the think mark that's, of yeah. good etiquette. And I would definitely, as my first comment or two that I toss out, I'd have them be not the most extreme. I'd have it be something mm. a little on the lighter side. Sure. So right-wing Nazi. <laughs> well, filters are good, my dear. Filters are good. <laughs> the same as watching a sporting event with family yeah. or friends. You get yeah. excited, you cheer for your team, you root, but you don't want to become the obnoxious 
uncle cousin. Unless you're a member of my family, in which case that seems to be a race to see who can be the most annoying uncle or cousin. Obnoxious. Yes. Uh, Here's something from Helen in Minnesota. She writes, if you have to crash on someone's couch after a party, what is the proper etiquette for leaving the following morning? Should you just leave quietly when you wake up or wait until your host gets up and make small talk with them, thank them for the party, etc.? Are you obligated to make slash fetch them breakfast? In my house, you are always obligated to fix me breakfast. <laughs> Regardless of whether you've stayed over or not. Regardless. Just... I expect blueberry pancakes and bacon. Um, wow. I think that, tell me if you agree, Dan, but I think it really depends on the situation. Whose house you're crashing at. How it happened, how yeah. it came about, whether they're up and off to work already, whether you're the first one up in the morning. Yeah, definitely. If people are like starting to wake up and be around the house, I wouldn't just stay laying on the couch and like try to sleep in till noon <laughs> and get up and if yeah. it wasn't someone that I was overly close with I would definitely leave a note if I left before anybody else was up and I'd but, you know tidy up the couch and make I, sure I love the tidy up I, yeah. I everyone knows the campsite rule you try to leave it a little better than you found it oh. for the mm. next person. If someone threw a leave blanket no over you, fold it up, put it on the back of the couch, plump the pillows, make make a little effort. Dust the figurines. <laughs> fold their laundry. Yeah, right. Absolutely. I like that this is happening so often to either Helen or her guest that she has to ask this question. <laughs> ask what's going on. Helen's yeah. either always throwing ragers or she maybe parties a little too hard. It was a really good debate. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We have a question from Seth in Atlanta. He asks, in my apartment complex, people often double park in such a way that it restricts others from moving their cars at all. Mm. I'll leave notes on windshields occasionally, but it doesn't seem to be working. Is there a way to be polite, but also get them to change their habits? Well, it sounds like you tried the polite thing, the the kind note. Oh, yeah. Bring out the baseball bat. Hit the taillights. Do you know the number for the towing service? Do you know who the the condo manager is? My mind goes straight to condo manager and towing service. I like it. This is one of the most obnoxious things is to be blocked in by someone. If you've got to get to work, you have, you know, an event that you're trying to get to. Damn straight, yeah. I'm going to call that tow truck and get your car out of there if I can't find you. I mean, the, the, the tears first leave a note, bring it up with your association, your next meeting, but uh, also know who to call, know what the recourse is. All right. This reminds me of in South Philadelphia, parking was so bad that when my friend would visit his grandparents, his sister and mother would go in and visit while he and his dad drove around in circles. Wow. And then they would switch. <laughs> <laughs> There's alternatives. Here's Shannon in Portland, Oregon. Shannon writes, I find that while most polite people would never dream of making an unsolicited comment on how large a woman is, they don't hesitate to say that a woman is so tiny, quote unquote. I find this incredibly weird and inappropriate. How do you recommend responding when it occurs? Oh, my God, you are so huge. (laughs) Blink, blink, and then a smile. You're such a towering monster. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But isn't the problem with this that they think that they're complimenting you? Because in our society... That's the thing. In our society today, a lot of women are thinking that smaller is better. A lot of women who give this compliment are giving it because it's what they think people want to hear. And I've had a lot of women I know who are very small or who might be tall but are very, very skinny say they don't like it because small to them feels insignificant. Mm. And I think that Mm. if you've got someone who's kind of a repeat offender in your life of this, it's okay to say, hey, look, it really isn't something I, I enjoy being told. Right. You can be like, I know you wish I said you were tiny, but you're not. <laughs> Listen, you're fat. I get it, but I'm not. This is this is so polite sounding to me. <laughs> All right, so we have uh, another question. This is from Cecilia. She asks, I just went to a baby shower this weekend, and I want to know what's the proper etiquette for opening gifts. 
Does the mom-to-be read everyone's card in the room or just say who it's from and then open it or just open it? This is why some people don't like going to showers because the shower is a gift-giving event production. Loving who a gift comes from, the thought behind it, the relationship with that person Mm -hmm. is a big part of the shower experience. And you don't have to necessarily – I mean oftentimes there are people that aren't present. And you don't need to read everything that they write in a card. But at the same time, a gift gets open, acknowledging who it came from yeah, and who it's for. I don't think you have to read the card out loud. Like, I don't, I wouldn't read the card out loud. I'd say, oh, this one's from so-and-so. And that's what you say. But, but as a little kid, when you get a gift, I, my parents always made sure I read the card because that was the important part. Yeah, but typically those cards weren't long declarations um, of excitement. People to, really loved me think? as a child. Really? You yeah. were that popular. I know, huh? I know it's hard to believe, Lizzie. <laughs> Lizzie, you're your voice sounds so tiny today. You are fat. <laughs> nice. And with that, Lizzie Post and Daniel Post setting. Thanks for telling our audience how to behave. I knew I could make them impolite someday. And now, time to eavesdrop. Swedish troubadour Jens Lekman just began a U.S. tour to support his new album, I Know What Love Isn't. He's an indie fan favorite known for his witty and romantic songs. He's also known for his live shows and the bittersweet tales he tells between songs. This week, we overhear one of them. The one story that comes to mind that I usually tell before I play the title track of the album called I Know What Love Isn't is a story about... How I almost entered into this sham marriage in order to be able to stay in Australia. For for two years, uh, two and a half years, I lived in Melbourne. I had a very good friend in Melbourne. We were very, very close friends. She was my best friend when I lived there. And we had so much in common and we just hung out all the time. And our lives were sort of synchronized. And we used to just drive around in her old crappy car on Friday nights and you know listen to classic rock radio and talk about life and love and stuff like that and we started talking at some point about getting married so I could stay in the country and it was just this really beautiful and appealing thought to 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 us to both of us because we had come out of these relationships around the same time and we were sort of in the same mindset at the time and the, the, the idea that we would build this relationship on something constructed, something with a purpose, it was just so much more appealing than building a relationship on some sort of vague feeling that could change at any time. But the thought struck me at some point that if I went through with this, I wouldn't be able to tell the story because it's illegal. And that really bothered me. I think being someone who tells stories in his songs. It really bothered me to, ha- to carry a great story that I would never be able to tell. And it was really hard. Uh, and especially, I think, when I started seeing where this album was going, I think it was a story that sort of put its finger on the pulse of the album. And that, in the end, I think, was one of the main major factors why I decided not to go through with it. Hey Danae, you still have your holden That old clunker's golden How about we take it for a spin Up and down like an 
Listen to music and look at girls. I want to know if we have the same taste. Do you like blondes or brunettes? The cocooned or the coquette. Don't pull over this yet. Look to the left. There's a 9.5 down the street, and to my right, a perfect ten sitting in the driver's seat. I don't know what love is, but I know what it is, and I don't know what love is, but I know what it is, and. So let's get married. It's kind of interesting though because when I've told this story, sometimes people have said, "Well, if you actually went through with this, you know, sham marriage thing, to get a citizenship or something, it's probably the story that you would be telling right now in order to cover it up." Well, I know. Musician Jens Lechman with the story behind the title track of his new album, I Know What Love Isn't. He taped that acoustic version of the song in our studio, and it's on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. I know what love is. I know what love is. It's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we speak with someone who knows something that we don't, so we can hold our own if the topic comes up in dinner conversation. Our teacher this week is Rachel Hers. She is an expert on the psychology of smell and emotion. She has a new book out called That's Disgusting, Unraveling the Mysteries of Repulsion. And Rachel, our show's goal is to give people things to talk about at their dinner parties, yet mm-hmm. the dinner table seems like the worst place <sighs> to discuss disgust. So let's start there. Why is the place where we eat one of the least friendly forums to talk about this emotion? Well, that's a really interesting question, primarily because being disgusted is physically the nauseated feeling. So hmm. vomiting is the classic you know, end result of being super disgusted. So you really wouldn't want to be doing that at a dinner table, most likely. <laughs> Unless you're in ancient Rome. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Disgust is, in fact, an extremely social emotion. So it has a lot of, it portrays a lot of information to the social group around you. So the the other people who are also there are are experiencing in kind with you. So it's not always the best thing to be feeling, especially at a dinner table. But if the food is rotted or poisonous, (laughs) it would be good if everybody started vomiting. (laughs) Now, is that, is there a relationship to the fact that the food may be dangerous for us and that's why we're repulsed by it? I mean, is there some sort of correlation? Exactly. So, for instance, if we were at the uh, primordial dinner table around the buffalo <laughs> that, that someone had just slaughtered for us, okay. well, let me back it up a tiny bit and say that this buffalo might have been dead for several days. Okay. And uh, we're pretty hungry, and we sit down to the communal water buffalo, and one guy <laughs> takes a, a slab of meat first and sticks it in his mouth and then makes this face, which is this big grimace, and sticks his tongue out and scrunches up his eyes and probably spits it out, maybe even vomits, then we say, hmm, not going to go there. So it has a big, it conveys a lot of meaning to the other people within the group. So Mm. it has this evolutionary 
advantageous component that other people benefit from your suffering, so to speak. And that face, the bad buffalo face, is universal, right? In, in your book, you discuss how all humans make the same disgust face. So yes, the mouth tends to close, but sometimes the tongue can stick out. So we sort of make this grimace where we're scrunching our mouth closed. We scrunch our eyes, and that also forces the muscles that are around our cheeks to sort of push against our nostrils. So in fact, we're, we're breathing in less. So the idea is that we're closing ourselves off to the outside, preventing the outside from getting into your inside. So you have this, you're protecting the sacredness of the inner self from the danger of the outside. You know, This book is chock full of interesting studies, anecdotes, and theories, so much so that I want to do sort of a lightning round here where (laughs) where I mention some of the interesting things I found in the book, and you tell me a little bit more about them. Are you game for that? Sure, yeah. Cool. Yep. So the first one is something that I found disgusting, but I can't stop thinking about. It is Rapunzel syndrome. Can you explain what that is? So Rapunzel syndrome is when people are compelled to eat human hair and they are so lustful for human hair, they will, you know, eat it out of your hairbrush. So, for example, if someone has Rapunzel syndrome and they're at your dinner table, they will sneak into the bathroom and start looking through for your hairbrushes and hoping to find one stuck with your hair to then suck it all out. And then they'll come back and they say, sorry, you know, I I think I'm a little full now. I'm not really interested in dessert. But that's because they have a hairball growing inside them. And people who have this syndrome can sometimes literally require operations to remove the hairball. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> okay. There, there you go. Well, that's one disgusting fact that was interesting. Here's a less disgusting fact. When it comes to bodily fluids, I never thought of it like this. Tears are the only fluid that is not disgusting. That's right. There's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, tears are mainly water. So mm. water is... we equate with purity and cleanliness, and and purity and cleanliness are basically the opposite of disgust. Okay. The second thing is that tears come from our eyes. And our eyes, we sort of portray as the windows to our soul. Eyes have a lot of positive associations around them. You know, we look into each other's eyes. We, The eyes are very special to us. And so I think the fact that they come from the eyes gives them this more privileged, more good place in the hierarchy of bodily fluids than if they came from our mouth or, or <laughs> wherever the other ones come from, <laughs> yeah. our, our guts. Okay, last topic in our lightning round, the idea of a unique odor print. So yes, the idea of an odor print is that every single one of us, unless you have an identical twin, every single person has a unique odor print. That is to say that your body odor profile is completely singular to you and no other person on the planet has it. It's like your fingerprint. Wow. And this has to do with our immune system. And the fact that each of us also has a unique immune system, and our immune system is what codes for the diseases we might carry, as well as what we can defend off well or maybe not so well. And this is represented, strangely enough, not by our eye color or our skin tone or anything else, but the outside manifestation of the genes of our immune system is your body odor. And wow, really? Women in, oh. Yes. Yeah, and women in particular are tuned into this in terms of selecting mates. So women will find a man who smells really good to be like the biggest turn on, bigger than how he looks, bigger than his wallet, et cetera. Wow. So, well, I was hoping as a radio person that the voice maybe had a strong uh, you know, <laughs> correlation, but apparently not. Well, I can say that listening to you seem to have a very attractive voice, but I have no idea what you smell like, so I can't really say anymore. <laughs> All right. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for this disgusting discussion. (laughs) 
It's a fascinating book, and I think we figured out a way people can present this at a dinner party without repulsing their neighbors. Or at least not repulsing them too much. And Rico, we originally aired that chat back in May, but since Halloween is around the corner, it makes sense to play our most horrifying segment ever all over again. Yeah, I don't know. Someone eating hair isn't that horrifying to me. Really? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> From the guy like, who uses a nightlight. <laughs> I'm saying if a zombie went to eat your brains but stopped at your scalp, it's like that. Consider yeah. yourself lucky. Okay. Dude. Folks, coming up, we have a new song from Kanye West. We also chat with Death Cab for Cuties Ben Gibbard. And we eat little fish with the big chef. If you have two slices of white bread and a can of sardines, you've got a party. All that and more when the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we hear a new track from Kanye West, produced by the RZA. It's like the homecoming king hanging out with the cool stoners. Yeah. I'm psyched about this. It's like pop music detention hall. But first, it is time to meet our guest of honor. This week, it's Ben Gibbard. He is the chief songwriter for the adored indie band Death Cab for Cutie. And for those wondering, the name comes from a song by the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, which is featured in the Beatles film Magical Mystery Tour. I love all of those things. All three of those bands. <laughs> Fine with me. Uh, me too. Death Cab has produced seven albums. One went platinum. They've topped the Billboard charts, and they've been nominated for Grammys. This week, Ben released a solo album. It's made up of songs he's written over the years. When I met up with him, I started by asking about the inspiration for the track, Bigger Than Love. I fell in love with a, a book of letters that was written between F. Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda Fitzgerald. They kind of span the entire arc of their lives together. So I wanted to write a song that was not so much taking directly from those letters, but that was kind of a Cliff Notes version of some of the imagery within those letters, because they're uh, really beautiful. Were you a fan of Fitzgerald's before that? I mean, what captivated you about the letters in particular? Well, I was, absolutely. Um, I don't know, I found them really romantic and heartbreaking. And I was also really taken aback at what a beautiful writer Zelda was. And I don't think she was kind of given enough credit, or he's given enough credit for also being a very talented writer in her own way. You said in an interview that your preferred method for writing songs is 9 to 5, Monday through Friday at an office. Is that true? Is that how you work? Yeah, it's, it's fairly true. It's not something I'm able to do when I'm traveling, and I've been traveling pretty much the whole year with the band and then now kind of promoting this record. But I'm really looking forward to getting back to my office and kind of getting back to a schedule because I really need that structure in order to function as a human being outside of just trying to write songs. It seems so bizarre for a popular musician to kind of punch the clock like that, but... You know, other musicians like Randy Newman um, used to work out of an office. Nilsson had requested an office. Nick Cave. Nick Cave, which is funny because a lot of people think songwriting is a lot of just living your life and waiting for the muse to come. But it sounds like it requires a certain amount of work ethic and, and discipline. I feel I should reference something that I heard my friend Britt from Spoon and the Divine Fits say that inspiration likes to find you hard at work. Whether or not he kind of came up with that on his own or not, I still find it to be a really poignant turn of phrase because it's true. I mean, you're, you're constantly trying to kind of channel that moment where it seems like the song is being sent down to you from somewhere else. But in order to kind of be open for those moments, you have to be sitting 
with a guitar in hand or in front of the piano or with a pen in your hand. Well, one song which I, I think maybe wasn't written in the office was Shepherd's Bush, which opens this album. In London it's raining, but I'm not complaining. I walk in the gray afternoon. Now, apparently you recorded this song on your phone while you're walking around London. Do a lot of songs come to you this way, just popping your head fully formed? It doesn't happen that often, but it did happen this time. And I don't want to make this into a commercial for an iPhone, but before I carried an iPhone with me, you know, I'd have a, you know, you have a camera and you have a, maybe you have a cell phone, you have something to record it, you know, like a dictaphone in your bag or something like that. But, you know, I just found myself walking around and just kind of humming. And, you know, it's just, I like to think of it as like a song-oid, a gooey chunk of song, you know? It's like nougat. My every thought is of you, oh, the clouds are beginning to break. Another song on the album, uh, Broken Yoke in Western Sky, has kind of been a staple of some of your solo shows for years. I'm wondering if that kind of says anything about how you feel about live performance versus recorded songs. Do you have a preference of one outlet over the other? I, I think one of the great things about the world we live in now is that if someone has performed a song at some point and you're a big fan of somebody, you can, you can find that. You know, the next day it's everywhere. Like, you know, this band, and, and you know, there's audio for you can download it and stuff. And I suppose if I never would have recorded it, that would have been fine as well. Because, you know, it would have existed somewhere. But yeah, I, I felt I wanted to kind of put a definitive version of the song out in the world. But I also think that, you know, songs are kind of living, breathing organisms. And just because you take a photo of one and, and put it on a record doesn't mean that that's the definitive version of the song. I think they, as, well, as, you, as you perform the songs, they continue to live in the world. And Bob Dylan once said that the best versions of his songs were never recorded. And I think that's a really good point. So you're part of this new generation of rock and roll lifers. You know, you started in 1997. You're not giants on the level of Madonna, but um, you're able to make a living at playing music. And you probably will be able to do that for a long time. I wonder if you have any mentors or any bands that you'd look to as a good model. Uh, around the 2004 election, we were on tour with Pearl Jam and you know, they were gracious enough to kind of let us travel with them. I mean, we were, we were traveling in a, in, a, in a style we'd never traveled since and never will ever again, probably. But, you know, the one thing that it, it, it made a real impression on all of us, and we talked about it together afterwards, was that, you know, these guys still don't really like each other. You know, I'm sure they have their issues like every, any band. I'm not idealizing anybody's kind of any band, but they were doing this because they loved doing it. At the end of the day, you have to ask yourself the question is why, as to why, are, why you're doing this. And the answer should always be because you love doing it and because you can't not do it and because you love the people that you're doing it with and you feel there's more to explore with them. And part of you probably wants that private jet, right? You know, there's too, there's too many accidents on those things, you know? I'd, I'd like to stay on the ground. <laughs> well, we have two standard questions we ask in our show. And the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? At this point, I'm tired of being asked when there's going to be another Pulse Service record. And for those who don't know, the Postal Service was a musical side project of yours that was very, very successful, um, and you only produced one album. Right. Well, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that people enjoyed the record so much, and, but I think that what people don't understand is that, you know, it's not a band. You know, I mean, it's not, uh, it was a project. All right. So our last question um, is, tell us something we don't know, and this can be about you personally, or it could just be like an interesting fact about the world. I grew up in a military family. My dad was in the Navy. And between the ages of two and five, we lived in Japan. And when I was a little tiny kid, I had a big head of blonde hair. And my parents were persuaded to start taking me around to modeling agencies in Japan 
because there was a market for little white kids in Tokyo at the time. They weren't going to sell you. They were going to sell your your no, likeness. No, they weren't going to sell me personally, but they were going to uh, try to like pimp me out, basically. And I got a couple of gigs. I, I was on a couple like Japanese TV commercials and a couple. No ads. way, really? I'm not making this up. I swear to God. And I have the print ads. My parents kept those. I mean, it was you know, sure. it wasn't a lot of stuff, but it was. It's really funny. But it lasted about three or four gigs and then it was apparent that I didn't like it. My parents, you know, kind of playfully kind of jabbed me over the years about we could have we could have we could have like made so much money off of you. We could have paid for your college and everything if you just would have liked it. If you just would have liked doing it. You could have been traveling like Pearl Jam. I could have been traveling like Pearl Jam. But it I I I do think that maybe as I'm talking about this now I've realized where the core of something in the, deep in the core of me as to why I don't like having my photo taken. <laughs> and why, you know, fo- like doing photo shoots is always my least favorite thing to do. Well, fortunately this is radio. Thanks. I've I've been told I have a face for radio. You and me both. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> And Brendan, if I'm not mistaken, that is the second indie rock icon we have interviewed this year who is a military brat, right? That's right, yeah. James Mercer of the Shins told us his father was in the army. You're totally right. I think we've stumbled upon the military indie complex. (laughs) (laughs) This is exactly what President Eisenhower warned us about. That guy was prescient. Uh, Folks, resist the complex. Don't listen to music. Listen to our past shows. You can find them all at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. now it's time for the main course where we talk about the best part of a dinner party the food so brendan as you know small fish have been kind of having their moment in upscale restaurants around the country is it really having your moment when more people are eating you because <laughs> that doesn't really seem like a good yeah thing. that's true the fish are probably not psyched about the attention but not at all. nonetheless they are getting it There's, we're talking about sardines anchovies herring these are appearing on lots of fine dining menus now But still, when friends and I are getting pizza and I tell them I'd like anchovies on it, I get all these crinkled faces from them. Well, the taste is not for everyone. Apparently. So to get some ideas on how to persuade non-believers to try these, I think, tasty creatures, I spoke with Michael Simarusti. His seafood-centric L.A. restaurant Providence was awarded two Michelin stars. And I started by asking him why people are so small fish averse. Well, I think the the one thing that little fish have in common, for the most part, is that little fish have big flavor, and a lot of people, uh, when especially when it comes to fish, that can put them off. For me, I mean, I think those flavors, those rich flavors, oily flavors that you get from like anchovy, mackerel, and sardines are some of the best to be found. But you know, my opinion might be in the minority. <laughs> Why? I mean, big flavor in almost any other food, it's like, mm, yes, delicious. I'm getting you know the most tomatoey tomato I can get. Why is a fish a problem? 
You know, I think maybe it's because uh, our palates have been sort of maybe uh, babied for, for many, many years. and We're wusses. Yeah, we've refined our, our diet. We've, you know, for every one piece of, uh, you know, mackerel or sardine that the average American eats, they probably eat 30 um, chicken breasts or maybe 100 chicken breasts, which have little or no flavor. And so, you know, when you come across a little tiny fish that's maybe got a few extra bones in it and full of flavor, even when perfectly fresh, perhaps it's understandable. Why do they have such big flavor? What is it? About, is it the oil that yeah. you mentioned? It's it's their oil content. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that all those little guys have in common, you know, sardines, anchovies, mackerel, is that they're very very fatty. And when you get them, you know, in pristine condition, you know, if you can salt a fish and throw it on a grill and successfully pull them off without burning yourself, you've done enough. And and that's one thing that they share in common that they can be prepared just in utter simplicity, and that's when they're at their best. So. What's wrong with that? Nothing. I'm actually a huge fan of it, and I'm always trying to convince people otherwise. What would, was there a moment where you tried it and realized that you had the taste for this that maybe others didn't? Um, no, I don't. I do remember like vividly as a kid, like hating anchovies, as, like with a with a white hot passion, and which probably all kids do. Um, but now, I mean, it's like the type of flavor that that salty or even white anchovy, which are more vinegary than they are salty. Um, but that kind of like vinegary or really salty type food is the type of stuff that I absolutely love. Even actually, even sardines out of the can. Oh my God, that's one of the. You know, if you have two slices of white bread and a can of sardines, especially the spicy kind of tomato sauce, you've got a party. And you don't need to do anything else. And they're absolutely delicious. I did not come here expecting you to tell me that white oh. bread with anything was going to be okay. No, uh, believe me. I mean, especially if you're out fishing, that is one of the... Or, listen, go to Banmi Che Kali. It's sort of, I think it's in Alhambra. An L.A. suburb, sort of. Yeah, exactly. So, banh mi che kali and get the sardine banh mi. Oh, it will change your world. I swear to God, it will change your opinion of what a sardine can be. And it's straight out of the can. It's like a tomato-y, kind of slightly spicy, vaguely spicy kind of sauce. But with all the, you know, normal fixings for a banh mi, and it's absolutely incredible. If you were going to convince somebody, honestly, this fish is worth trying would that be the, your go-to or what would be your first preparation for somebody who is maybe doesn't think that they like this stuff well i you know maybe a bami would be in the top five but but you know probably the very best thing if you have great sardines or great anchovy you know salt olive oil lemon juice and a grill there's nothing more than you need actually can you show me some of this stuff you I, you said that you had some amazing finds at the farmer's market today at the fish market yeah we did more than happy to show them to you so where are we right now? We're in the fish box here at Providence. So this is a, it's a refrigerated room we use to butcher all the fish when it comes in. All right, and we are looking at a plate of what does not look like any sardines that I've ever seen. These are sardines, these are wild sardines from Japan. When they're available, we, I prefer to get the Japanese ones. The, you know, Japanese really revere this fish and they take incredible care of it. So they, they're put in ice water the moment they're caught on the boat and then they're transported uh, in ice water as well. And that keeps them in just a beautiful, pristine state. Plus, if you see, I mean, Rico, look at these sardines. They're like eight inches long. Yeah, this does not yeah. look like sardines to they're me. giant, yeah, and absolutely just full of fat. These sardines oftentimes, you know, my, the way I like to cook them is on the grill. We have a, a Japanese bichotan grill. Oftentimes, these fish are so fatty that you can't really grill them without, like, pulling them off constantly because the fat drips out of them and they flare up. 
which is a sign of quality and flavor and sure. deliciousness. You are not going to put this on a pizza. No, we wouldn't put them on a pizza, but we do oftentimes put them in pasta. You know, traditional um, Sicilian pasta that I love to make, pasta with sardines or pasta con sarde, which, you know, is traditional down there. Which usually it's, you know, fennel. Uh, here we use fennel pollen, fennel greens, some tomato, toasted pine nuts, garlic, uh, our, our fresh, you know, hand-rolled pasta and, and sardines and a couple drops of white wine and olive oil. It's amazing. And it's one of my favorite things to eat. You are making me so jealous because I'm <laughs> positive that you don't have any of that on hand, do you? Yeah, we could try and whip something up. Okay, good. All right. All right, so we were in the kitchen. I've been presented with a large plate on which sits a tall dollop of the most beautiful pasta I've ever seen. What is this that I'm eating? Pasta con sarde, which is... You know, Sicilian classic. It's like peasant food. You know, it's, it's it's what you would find if you were there. And I love to share with people that really appreciate, especially people that appreciate good pasta and people that appreciate good fish. And this this is clearly. I hope you think it's both. <laughs> I have a feeling that I will. All right, let me try it. It's really beautiful. This is hand rolled pasta. Oh my god. I did not for breakfast. I had coffee and a uh, Danish out of the uh, vending machine at work, and this is a little bit of a step I up. So. All right, here we go. Mm. Oh, Michael, you are my Sicilian grandmother is very, very happy with you right now. Good. Yeah, I love this pasta because even though you might not get sardine in every bite, but the oil and the fat from the sardine comes out and coats the pasta. It's just delicious. If you don't like sardines after having this dish, you're dead. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Brendan, I'm not kidding. I've been having dreams about that dish since Michael made it for me. Ah, oily, fragrant dreams, I'm sure. Yeah, very smelly. And you know, actually, there's another reason beyond taste to try small fish. They are apparently more sustainable. They're abundant in oceans around the world. Or were abundant, because now they're on menus everywhere, and we just did a story about how great they are. So, (laughs) nice work, dude. Whoops. All right, that's the dinner party for this week, everyone. Next week, we hear from astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson and musician extraordinaire Stephen Merritt of the Magnetic Fields. Jackson Musker is the assistant producer extraordinaire of the dinner party. Yes. James Kim and Tamika Adams are extraordinary interns. Thanks also to Brendan Willard, Jess Horowitz, Chris Peters, Peter Clowney, and our friends at Public Radio's business show, Marketplace. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. And this is probably best heard after the party. Later this fall, RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan makes his directorial debut with the movie The Man with the Iron Fists. Mm. He also produced the soundtrack, which includes this track from an artist named Kanye West. The song is called White Dress. Bon appetit. Try to sneak upstairs to your apartment Aren't you a sight for red eyes? I just flew in and slipped in on your left side Just a satin gown, you asleep with no makeup I'm just trying to be inside you before you wake up We had problems with this all in the past Everybody got problems, baby, I just a class Remember I used to do things that'd make you laugh Like ordering a girl drink in a masculine glass She like pina coladas getting caught in the rain Or rocking flannels all summer like Kurt Cobain Or that Dolce Gabbana with a few gold chains And you the type of girl that probably deserve a new last name But I swear to God that they get you going crazy But you play it off and say, how's work, baby? Well, some other models is too comfortable to walk straight But seem to still love the man that they all hate But babe, I call you back and say you say that always it kept me on the phone and demanded they always see
Thanks for attending the dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks for listening. Dude. What? I'm sorry. It's one thing for a rock star to do his work on the street with an iPhone. You're a public radio host. The future's here, Grandpa. Get with it. Ooh, a hot dog cart. Ah, that's my foot.